Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 468, recorded on Sunday, April 30th, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. So this week, we're talking about the field of home economics or domestic science. Was it really a science? To what extent was it a marketing exercise? Can it ever really overcome its founding racist and classist overtones? Does home economics even exist anymore? This episode is most heavily drawing from two books, Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English's For Her Own Good, 150 Years of the Expert's Advice to Women, and I read the 1978 version, but it has been reissued with updates in 1989 and also eventually a revised title in 2005, and Danielle Dreilinger's The Secret History of Home Economics, published in 2021. So after we cover those four uh, questions that I asked, we will also briefly discuss one specific second industrial revolution era female home technology inventor, Josephine Cochran. So first, let's start with the science aspect of home economics or domestic science. So really, the field began as a way for women to break into higher education in a society that largely shut women out of the academy. Um, after the Civil War, tertiary education expanded to include women and black students. Uh, Land-grant colleges established in the West and South were the first to enroll these new cohorts, and these colleges offered more of an industrial education or manual training curriculum rather than a classical university education. Uh, Domestic science programs were meant to train women on the best ways to run a household using scientific methods. However, even from the beginning, women sought ways to break free from the constraints of the household. Uh, One of the leaders of domestic science was Ellen Richards, uh, born Ellen Swallow, and she taught at MIT in the 1870s while analyzing the water supply of Massachusetts for environmental hazards and testing wallpaper for arsenic for an insurance company. Richards did end up returning to the household sphere in 1890 when she and business partner Mary Hinman Abel opened up the New England Kitchen. The New England Kitchen offered takeout meals and recipes designed to teach customers how to make delicious and healthy, but cheap, meals. Uh, Home economists also sought to change people's diets on the macro level and invented the field of nutrition science. Uh, When U.S. Food Administration Director Herbert Hoover called for Americans to conserve food during World War I, he also called on Cornell Home Economics faculty Flora Rose and Martha Van Rensselaer to develop delicious meals that also reduced the amount of meat, wheat, and sugar that Americans were consuming. Uh, Lena Cooper and Lulu Graves created the American Dietetic 
Association in 1917, and Cooper became the supervising dietitian for the Army a year later. Uh, Cooper recruited 350 dietitians who were the first women besides nurses to serve in a U.S. war. Uh, after World War I, during the Great Depression, Cornell once again stepped up to the plate, developing Milcorno, which was cornmeal mixed with dried milk powder and salt to kind of provide a whole, uh, a whole food that could meet most nutritional needs. And they followed Milcorno up with Milkwito and Milkoto. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was a booster of Cornell's home economics program and wrote that, quote, the mother of the family should look upon her housekeeping and the planning of meals as a scientific occupation, end quote. Um, FDR's New Deal expanded school lunch programs to serve the dual purpose of feeding children and dealing with agricultural surplus. Uh, later in World War II, nutrition once again became a war readiness concern. In the fall of 1940, one-third of men called up for service failed their physicals due to nutrition-related factors. In response, the National Research Council created the Food and Nutrition Board, who developed the now well-known recommended daily allowances of various nutrients. Clothing design was another field that home economists tackled. In the 1920s, the Bureau of Home Economics, run by Louise Stanley, worked on standardizing clothing measurements. And up till then, it, had, it was a real crapshoot. Everyone kind of measured clothing um, in the way they wanted, and nothing really matched up. There was no standard clothing measurement sizes. And in during World War II, Bureau scientists tested cotton stocking designs that replaced nylon and silk stockings, um, nylon and silk being heavily rationed during World War II. Uh, they also designed women's work uniforms. While this might seem frivolous, uniforms had to be safe to wear while working around heavy industrial machinery. And quoting from the book, The Secret History of Home Economics, most of the patterns had box-seamed crotches to allow for squatting and stooping. The two-piece farm suit had snap-on, snap-off sleeves and ankles that could be cinched to keep out dirt and grasshoppers. The nurse's uniform remained crisp without starch, which provided the, quote, dignity that nurses want, end quote. The belt of the mechanic suit immediately unsnapped if it caught on anything to avoid pulling the worker into machinery or damaging the suit. A dress for scientists had pockets high on the chest out of the way of counters and vials. It was wraparound with the back cut surplice style and on the bias, quote, so the arms have plenty of freedom for the reaching and stretching that laboratory work often requires, end quote. Post-World War II, however, the focus of home economics changed drastically. While women were a major part of the workforce during the war, they were pushed out to make room for returning veterans. And quoting again from the book, by 1960, more than one-third of women married before the age of 20, and two-thirds married by the time they were 24. Birth rates bounced up after more than a decade of deprivation and war. The share of female college students fell to one-third, down from half the total number of students in 1920. Almost every man aged 25 to 34 worked in the 1950s, but only one-third of women. Despite technological advances that made laundry and its like faster and easier, Women spent as much time on housework in the 1950s as they had 30 years before, about 52 hours per week, end quote. In response to these societal changes, home economists started extolling the virtues of the home and the role of the homemaker as the pinnacle of womanhood. Rather than running the home in a scientific manner, the most important aspect of running a home became managing the emotions of the family unit. Many of the first generation of home economists had died, 
and in their place rose child development experts such as Dr. Benjamin Spock and the National Conference on Family Relations, largely made up of white men. The NCFR had a conservative view of family and gender roles, which trickled down to home economics curricula at the high school level. Quoting again from the book, Though high school classes still spent most of their time cooking and sewing, now they learn to cook in order to please their family, cultivate strong relationships, gain confidence, and develop social competence. The point of sewing was not primarily to save money, become a savvy shopper, develop a marketable skill, learn math and geometry in a tactile fashion, or even do something useful with your hands, but to be a delightful woman with a strong and a happy family, end quote. It was this view of home economics and household management that created the perfect consumer for new products and technologies and a captive audience for advertisements in ladies' magazines and on radio and television. And that brings us to the second question. To what extent was home economics or domestic science really a marketing exercise? So we've heard a few interesting things from certain phases of this uh, discipline, if you want to call it that, that were genuinely useful or positive. But we also need to talk about the intrinsic involvement in marketing. Uh, and this section I'm going to be drawing pretty heavily uh, from the uh, Aaron Reich in English book for her own good. Uh, so product marketing for cleaning products seems to have more influence on decisions about how best to clean the home than actual public health and sanitation research. Uh, that was true in the 1978 uh, period when they were writing this book originally, but I, I think it's probably not changed significantly since then. Advertisements warn about how some other competing product leaves behind germs, even if the product being advertised might actually be worse for health. For example, wet cleaning is in fact more microbe-friendly than dry dusting, but ads portray dusters as just moving dust around and not making the house safer. Uh, and as uh, Aaron Reich and English were basically able to show, it's not really clear that there's much of a linkage between uh, actual public health and safety and a sort of generalized hygiene ideology that is promoted by uh, a lot of the uh, home economics uh, literature and publications and advertisements. And of course, you can think about that when you think about questions like, why do we see allergies on the rise these days? Well, maybe it's because people uh, live in a different, more sterile type of environment as children uh, when previously they would have been developing certain resistances to things. We don't know that for sure, but that's something to keep in mind. Homemaking journals and magazines are filled with product advertisements, and that's been true since the beginning. Uh, that's not really a surprise, of course, but it does skew the framing of these publications, politics and prescriptions, hyping up the exciting and fulfilling world of a conservative life at home, keeping a house for a husband or employer. These publications sought to transform a particular way of life into a respectable professional capital C career, which just happened to be at home. Uh, at the beginning of this process, when this was emerging as a discipline, uh, servants were declining in availability and affordability, and middle-class homemaker women needed to use technology and methodology to run an efficient home without servants, just as any other industry was mechanizing production lines and applying the scientific management of Taylorism to reduce waste and time management. Now, of course, that's not me saying that. That's what we're explaining the uh, perspective of a lot of these publications were, and that was the messaging that a lot of these women were we're receiving. And again, for a lot of this, think about who is the person behind the messaging 
and what is their background versus who are the people that are reading and consuming this messaging. Is this for everyone? No, and we're going to talk more about that. Uh, but also, uh, is it maybe skewing the beliefs and opinions of some of the people who don't necessarily know any better uh, because this is their only source of information on this stuff, and they're just saying, well, I guess it must be true, uh, and that can be pretty damaging. These publications also seized upon the growing social concern around public sanitation and slum housing, especially at the turn of the last century, to tell women that they needed to redouble their cleaning efforts, with, of course, plenty of cleaning product purchases, in order to maintain a hygienic home for their families. The small nuclear family living in a single-family unit instead of multifamily tenement rooms was the only right and safe way to live. They were also the only way to stop the spread of communism, apparently. Homeowners are a better target market for homemaking products as well, because a home is an investment to be maintained and not a rental property that one happens to reside in as a tenant for now. The publications, as well as the home economics classes taught in schools, also propagandized the idea that, quote, right living, end quote, and what we would essentially term bourgeois manners, uh, were superior to the ways of the unsophisticated urban poor, uh, or of course the rural poor, but there, there was increasingly more and more people living in cities, and these were the target markets for a lot of this literature. And this helped to create and maintain rifts among women from the urban proletariat in the United States who might otherwise have stood in solidarity with each other during labor struggles. This particular phenomenon was reported by anarchist Emma Goldman at the time. If you didn't own the right cleaning products or the right home decor or furnishings those products were to be used on, then you weren't good enough and you needed to strive for a better material station and you would look down on people, sometimes including your own mother, who weren't supposedly doing things the right way or didn't have the right material possessions and so on. Now, as Rachel said, one of the really key statistics that we see throughout all of the literature on uh, any of the different things that we've read on this, there was also another book that we uh, looked at but didn't draw as much from, is that the actual amount of time and energy on household tasks went up significantly, even as there were all these new appliances and machinery and equipment and things like that. So cleaning work was now mechanically easier than ever. But there was a constant message to women managing a home that they needed to be using that equipment and those cleaning products constantly to keep the home and possessions spotless every day instead of maybe leaving it for once a year or once a week, depending on the type of cleaning. Uh, there's a quote in one of the books talking about how, you know, in your grandmother's era, there would be one cataclysmic cleaning session called spring cleaning, and that's when you'd get rid of all the dust and bang out the carpets and blah, 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 right? And then now it was, well, I've got this vacuum, I'd better use it to make sure that this carpet is completely dust-free every single day or every single week. And you had, a, we talked about on our episode about Singer sewing machines and the rise of clothing and things like that, and mass production clothing, uh, is that you transition over this period from having just a few outfits in most families' uh, homes uh, to having, uh, you know, different clothes every uh, day of the week and then maybe even multiple sets from there. And you've got all these children and pretty soon you're uh, just constantly running the washing machine. So instead of washing things once a week, now you're having to do it every day, right? So you can see how the, the hours and minutes are ticking up gradually. Uh, home economics specialists and their publications enthusiastically endorsed domestic products and appliances and took active roles in marketing them to women. 
Now, in the 1950s, companies were completely uninterested in cultivating any kind of genuine education on savvy home management in women. Uh, so previously, you know, in earlier eras, at least some of the focus on home economics was this idea that you were going to have these savvy consumers, they were going to be educated, this was their their science, that they were their small science that they were doing at home, they were making their home a unit of economic production, it was, you know, important to save money and learn how to economize and get the most bang for your buck. Obviously, that perspective is not shared by 1950s consumer products companies uh, and appliance companies. So before I continue on this point and their conclusions, I want to go back to highlight something that Rachel said earlier uh, in the section talking about the element to which this was a science. So let's look at the sort of uh, the, the changing demographics among uh, women uh, in this period. So Obviously, there had been this large female workforce during the war, then that ends when the war ends. Not for everyone, of course, many women were still working, and we're going to come back to that. But by 1960, as Rachel said, more than one third of women married before the age of 20, and two thirds married by the time they were 24. So we're talking about pretty young women here. Birth rates bounced up after more than a decade of deprivation and war. So that means that we've got all these women that uh, their mothers maybe only had one or two kids, but now they're back to having, you know, four and five kids uh, for at least this uh, short period of time. Um, and uh, the share of female college students fell to one third, down from half the total number of students in 1920. So a lot of these women, uh, although, the, you know, previously they had been kind of you know, they had gotten a degree or at least done some college and then they'd sort of been relegated to the home and they were trying to make the best of it by viewing themselves as this, you know, home economist and so forth. Now we have uh, an increasingly large number of, uh, of these very young married women and mothers who don't have any college education at all. Okay. And uh, the men are achieving almost universal employment uh, and only a third of American women are working. So this is the demographic that we're talking about uh, in this very particular time period of the 1950s. So again, these corporations, they're not interested anymore in having savvy uh, women running these homes who are, you know, empowered and are uh, stretching a dollar and so forth. No, these women are a problem for them because they might be choosier and more sensible on what they spend their money on. So instead, the companies dumbed down their marketing and product user instructions and tried to turn base consumption itself into empowerment if they even bothered to emphasize the latter theme at all anymore. The act of choosing a product to buy from among all the other identical products at about the same price was the only freedom and independence a woman needed from her man who shouldn't get involved in this kind of women's business. And of course, that's a key part of the propaganda as well, is telling the men to butt out of it and mind their own business because they might be mad if they found out what their wife was spending money on. And, you know, that's not great. But uh, the, the, the reasoning that they don't want them involved is not for the benefit of the women. It's to make sure that the women uh, are able to spend as much as possible on these consumer products that they are trying to advertise and sell. Um, the ideal female shopper for a major corporation in this time period was, quote, dazed and suggestible, end quote. The more isolated and insecure she could be made to feel, the more likely she could be manipulated into buying whatever these companies wanted her to buy. This was a good fit, of course, with the growing post-war suburbia lifestyle and the separation of generations into different housing. No one was around to give you a pro tip from years of experience or to confirm that you weren't stupid and should believe in yourself if you're a 
21-year-old mom who never went to college and now has a bunch of kids to take care of and a man who's always at work, right? So it's a very isolating, very alienating experience, and they're still continuing to frame this as some sort of, you know, domestic science or whatever uh, because that's the way they make these people feel good, but they're not actually giving them any real training or knowledge or anything. They're just trying to sell them more and more and more and more and more. Now, of course, we're focusing here on what we've said so far on a pretty specific demographic of women, especially these post-war suburban white women. So let's zoom out a little bit and remember the fact that there are a lot more women in the United States in all of these different eras, and that has a profound impact on this field. Rachel? Yeah. So where did home economics get get this white, upper-middle-class uh, stereotype well, it really goes back to the early days when it was founded by that same group of white middle and upper class women and, uh, oddly enough, Melville Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System. And the field was really formalized in Lake Placid, New York, at Melville and Annie Dewey's Adirondack Resort. Um, the Deweys and their wellness resort colleagues, the Kellogg's of Cornflakes fame, uh, were into eugenics. Um, so eugenicists embraced home economics because it was thought that, quote unquote, right living could cure some of those heritable ills. And although many of the Lake Placid group didn't subscribe to eugenics, uh, none really went out of their way to publicly condemn the racists in their cohort. So they really kind of became um, the epitome of what home economics was to become. Um Furthermore, the Lake Placid group at best ignored or at worst fully disparaged uh, black and Native American women, as well as the rural Midwestern land grant colleges that took the first steps in domestic science. And uh, the first uh, teachers at those land grant colleges came from rural, poor backgrounds. So the Lake Placid group just basically kind of overshadowed um, these land grant colleges, these uh, the, the people that that created the the field in the first place. Um, so black women were left to develop their own curricula and create their own institutions. And from the very first Lake Placid conference, uh, Margaret Murray Washington, who was the woman who helped develop Tuskegee Institute's domestic science curriculum and was married to Booker T. Washington, um, she was excluded from the very first meeting. So from the very foundations of the discipline, Black women were basically ignored and left to to create their own institutions. Uh, so home economics developed segregated professional associations with the rich white group uh, creating the American Home Economics Association. And black women just kind of created their own localized, decentralized groups of their own. And the, a the AHEA... Uh, basically ignored the contributions of black home economists. Um, they weren't written about, their their uh, accomplishments were not discussed or praised in any way by the larger economics association body. For her part, Washington was busy as the editor of the National Association of Colored Women's Club newsletter and also the president of the Tuskegee Women's Club. And the women's clubs were kind of the more uh, informal um, decentralized way for black women to associate and uh, trade ideas and uh, develop these curricula. So as home economics started appearing in high school curricula, 
it was a way for schools to shunt girls of color into job training for their futures as domestic servants. So uh, segregated uh, Southern schools uh, really pushed uh, home economics on their black students. And also in California, a superintendent created a segregated school for Chicana girls to learn home economics as job training for becoming maids, laundry workers, and factory seamstresses. And even white immigrants didn't escape the judgment of the AAGA. Um, as you know, even uh, what we would consider white immigrants weren't considered white at the time. So uh, Italians um, and Irish were not considered white, and they really needed to, uh, in the eyes of the AAGA, they needed to become Americanized. So high school curricula encouraged immigrant families to Americanize their diets and the industry journal, the Journal of Home Economics, painted immigrant communities as threatening to public health. Um, as Bill mentioned, the, the tenement lifestyle, the renting lifestyle, was a dirtier way to live than a, a nuclear family living in a single family housing unit. So if you could paint the immigrant lifestyle as unideal as possible, and the white suburban lifestyle is the most ideal, the best way to live. Um, that's a way to kind of force uh, these groups of people to live a certain way. One of these books mentioned that the emphasis on nutrition would be things like, don't make this nutritious, delicious, traditional stew from the old country that your mom makes and keeps everyone fed and, you know, relatively... Uh, in good health. I mean, nobody was in particularly great uh, nutritional health at this point. But instead, it was you have to separate all your foods by color, maybe even get a plate that has dividers, things like that. And, you know, just eat green beans and whatever else. And the less sort of nutritional value, the better, seemingly. Uh, and certainly the taste was not a factor at all. So you'd have the green beans and uh, unseasoned chicken breasts and things like that. And this was the Americanized diet that they were pushing. Because if you made a stew, that was peasant food for poor people. Uh, and that that's also the type of thing that we see in these uh, a lot of these uh, earlier accounts is these uh, women talking about observing this either in themselves or their friends and family, seeing these phenomenon of the kids coming home from school and, you know, really um, putting on airs, as Emma Goldman said, and de denigrating uh, the people that, you know, were doing it a different way because they had been told at school that that wasn't how you were supposed to do it. Yeah, I, I read a line. I didn't quote it in this uh, outline, but a, a Jewish home economics uh, expert apparently was lamenting the fact that the Jewish German diet included a lot of pickles, which nutritionally pickles aren't bad for you. They're not really great for you either, but they're not bad or, or, uh, a, a morally incorrect food to eat. So it's, it's, yeah, it's like they were just too ethnic. Um, so yeah, you had to make your diet as bland and, and white bread basically as possible. Um, also, in the 1940s, the AHEA created a national teen home economics organization called the Future Homemakers of America. Um, at this time, there were a lot of teen groups like Future Farmers of America, uh, 4-H, all kind of proliferating at this time. Um, so the Home Economics Association kind of jumped on the bandwagon as well with the Future Homemakers of America. And to appease segregated Southern white schools, a separate sister organization for black high schools was created called the New Homemakers of America. And this kind of echoes 
the new uh, farmers of America was the black uh, agricultural um, teen group. So the two organizations remained segregated well after Brown v. Board of Education. And it wasn't until the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that Education Commissioner Francis Keppel forced the issue. Um, federal money did go to future and new homemakers, and Keppel could withhold funding from non-compliant entities. So finally, on July 1st, 1965, the new homemakers of America were folded into the FHA. And as for the American Home Economics Association itself, um, they didn't elect a black president until 1975. And even after... Uh, Black home economists were kind of folded into the larger bodies. Um, it it became a way for uh, uh, white the white majority to basically kind of silence the black minority. So um, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a, a special specific newsletter for black uh, home economists or black students. So their accomplishments that previously were praised within the group kind of just became um, covered over. So it, even though they were folded into the larger body, they weren't really uh, equal members of the group and uh, allowed to flourish and shine in their groups. So even though it, they, they did get integrated finally, um, it wasn't really a great outcome for, for the black members at all. And the legacy of these racist roots can still be felt today, um, specifically in the field of dietetics and nutrition. So back in 2020, a New York Times article came out and that wrote about how uh, dietetics and nutrition often ignore diverse diets in favor of those bland chicken breasts and steamed vegetables, which can really alienate clients who are ethnic and minorities. Um, also, people of color who seek to become registered dietitians faced obstacles such as difficulties getting placed in internships, and they often feel ignored by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Uh, quoting from the article, uh, more than 71% of the nation's roughly 106,000 registered dietitians are non-Hispanic white, according to the Academy's Commission on Dietetic Registration. Nearly 84% are women. So although the Academy has promised to try to diversify the recommendations, many dietitians are skeptical that any real change is going to happen. And quoting again from the article, in June, so this would be June 2020, the organization responded to pressure from disaffected members by committing to developing action plans to address any inequities in the profession. It has created a new diversity and inclusion advisory group, and conducted virtual forums to hear the concerns of 126 randomly selected members. Shannon Curtis, 30, a Houston dietitian who helped found a group called Dietitians for Change, attended one of the sessions. Quote, although it was empowering to know that we are not the only ones screaming about this, she said, it was kind of a waste of time, in my opinion, because I am not exactly confident that they will take this information and put it into action, into an action plan that they will actually act on, end quote. So the the racist roots of this discipline have really kind of been perpetuated. And I think uh, we can see that coming out in today in fields such as nutrition science and dietetics. And I, yeah, I, I think it, it, at this point, home economics kind of just has a bad rap. Uh, some of it isn't really warranted, but I would say this, 
aspect of it definitely is. And I don't know if there's a way to fully um, get rid of that stain at this point. I think you kind of have to scrap everything and start over um, with a commitment to to bringing in diverse members and um, listening to diverse uh, uh, viewpoints and perspectives. Um, so I, I don't know how how you feel about this bill. <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard to unwrap and unravel and disentangle a really quite problematic discipline from, you know, almost the beginning uh, and in terms of formal institutions from literally day one. Um, getting rid of those legacies. There are certain cases when you can obviously all just acknowledge like, hey, this was a bad way that things were done. We shouldn't have done that. Let's move on. And we're sorry, right? But that's not really the problem here. Uh, This is completely tangled up in capitalism as well, you know, because like, who were all those companies trying to market to? Well, they weren't trying to market to black women or Latina women. They weren't trying to market to the poor. They were trying to market to middle class white women in cities and suburbs. That's who they were trying to market to. And those are the ones that paid the bills for those magazines and publications and things like that. So you were never going to, from the very beginning, ever really get a serious discipline out of this that was meaningfully empowering to women, uh, even the women narrowly defined in terms of the target demographic of this, let alone all the other women who were completely left out. And I think it's hard to go back because that's so baked in and it's still baked in. Right. I don't think that that's really changed something like good housekeeping or whatever. If you opened it today, it's still going to be the same type of products that are really making money for those publications. I don't think you can really move on from that, like you said, without really starting over from complete scratch. And even then, of course, it's a question of how you would disentangle yourself from capitalism more broadly. But I think that the roots here of like trying to, you know, tailorize everything and avoid communism and whatever, like you can see that there's such a huge ideological project behind this that doesn't even just stop at the fact that they're doing these consumer products. And that's the goal is to sell more consumer, you know, cleaning products and appliances and things like that. And so that's sort of my, my take on, on where things are right now with that. And I think a lot of it has been very harmful and destructive and, not really compatible with like genuine home building and homemaking that is for everyone's benefit and not just to sort of sell products and placate some people and keep the women in their place or whatever. I don't think a lot of this stuff was actually empowering and certainly it has been more at at times than at other times. Um, But it's kind of hard to see that as really being genuine, I guess is the word that I would say. Yeah, I would say, like like we saw in, in many aspects, I think there was a tiny window in 2020 when we had the initial lockdowns, for, for whatever that means, um, that there was kind of that reckoning, like people are spending more time in the home. Uh, there is a concern with true, like, decontamination, uh, um, disinfecting surfaces and whatnot. And I think there was a tiny, tiny window. But I think it just kind of slammed shut and inertia just kind of carried us through that time um, as it did in many other ways of life that we were kind of examining in 2020. And I think um, there wasn't quite the force behind 
I, there might have been the fours, like the the corporations that are trying to sell cleaning products or um, people trying to capitalize on that fear. Um, so I think, yeah, that window just kind of closed and there were just too many forces arrayed against true, um, true reform and true, I guess, enlightenment that <laughs> that we just we just couldn't didn't really have a chance to win um, at that time. So let's talk about one of the iconic examples of consumer appliance technology in the home that was supposed to make life better for women and uh, free us from the burdens of toil and the need for servants, uh, supposedly. Uh, So let's talk about the dishwasher and uh, Josephine Cochran, uh, who was a uh, woman who invented the dishwasher, uh, although not the type of dishwasher that ultimately uh, ended up becoming popular in the home. Uh, So in the 1870s and the early 1880s, Josephine Cochran was a Chicago high society wife and mother in her 30s and then 40s. Hosting dinner parties meant a lot of dishwashing for her servants, and by some accounts, like in Ed Sobey's The Way Kitchens Work, The Science Behind the Microwave Teflon Pan Garbage Disposal and More, which is a book we've previously cited on this show and is why I decided to talk about Josephine Cochran, uh, she didn't like how the servants were doing the dishwashing and alleged that they were chipping the dishware. Now, I don't know if that's actually true, but that was in that account at least. Uh, Josephine Cochran's husband died in 1883, and she decided to get serious about developing an idea she had long had to invent a mechanical dishwasher, working with a mechanic who would eventually uh, manage her factory. By the end of 1885, she had filed her patent application, and by the end of 1886, she received approval. Cochran's key design innovation, beyond just her very carefully constructed wire holders for plates, cups, and saucers, which prevents chipping, was to focus on using water pressure to clean the dishes rather than trying to use machinery to replicate the scrubbing process a human would use to clean the dishes. And I think that's what other inventors who were maybe working on the idea of a machine dishwasher had been attempting up until that point. And so to that extent, she really did change the game because she came up with this idea of using the water pressure in an enclosed space to clean it. Uh, However, her prototype faced two key challenges uh, before they uh, could be possibly turned into um, a mass market uh, product for consumers. One, uh, it required the home to already have a very large hot water boiler, which very few U.S. homes at the time had, although they later would. Gas water heaters arrived in the U.S. in 1889, but they didn't begin to take off until the first decade of the 1900s, and so at that point, it was uh, too late for this project. And that might be something we'll talk about later, um, as a lot of that technology was uh, refined and implemented in the United States, uh, although first came over from elsewhere. Now, the second problem was that her dishwasher was simply too expensive for middle-class women to buy, uh, even if they did somehow have a way of uh, heating the water in their house. However, at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, she exhibited her design, and it became clear that there was an institutional market for a machine dishwasher. So in the traditional style, you start off small, you have small-scale bespoke production, uh, which fills the initial orders for restaurants and hotels, and I think later colleges and hospitals, they had to get... uh, approval for uh, dishwashers, uh, machine dishwashers under sanitation laws for that to count as being sufficiently sanitary. Um, But eventually, uh, in 1898, demand was high enough to justify opening an actual factory to produce the dishwashers at a larger scale rather than just waiting for an order, uh, and sales were being made all around North America. 
Now, Josephine Cochran did not live to see her invention become a common feature in middle-class homes. This did not occur until the 1950s. She passed away in 1913. Her company was sold to the Hobart Manufacturing Company, best known by the brand line KitchenAid in 1926. Stay tuned for an upcoming uh, episode on that. And uh, that's a fascinating company in its own right. But that's the brief story of Josephine Cochran and her uh, invention of the uh, pressure dishwasher. So, uh, Rachel, any closing comments either on that or the uh, overall topic of uh, the domestic science and home economics? Well, since you mentioned uh, uh, homemaking tasks kind of expanding to fill the time allowed, like dishwashing is another thing, even running your 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 dishwasher in your home has become a daily task rather than maybe like a weekly task or or something just kind of load it up and wait for it to get full now it's like oh it uses less water if you run it every day but then it does become more of a a time uh suck if you're running your dishwasher every single day and loading and unloading it every day instead of just kind of waiting for a full loaded dishes so there it's it's another expansion of of time spent uh doing these tasks all right well rachel thanks for doing a huge amount of reading and research on this topic uh thanks uh it was a good use of my time i would definitely recommend uh finding for her own good barbara ehrenreich in deirdre english's book um i found it much more useful especially from that kind of leftist sociological perspective um over danielle drylinger's book um the Secret History of Home Economics is kind of more of a pop history sort of book, which is which is fine, but not really what we're looking for when we're trying to do research for these episodes. So yeah, if we're you can... here for the Emma Goldman quotes on home economics, and you're only going to find those in the uh, you know socialist writing there. Yep, exactly. So if, I'm glad it was it was reissued and revised in 2005, which means it's probably a bit more available. Um, my library happened to have the 1978 version, which I'm sure most other libraries have probably weeded out by this time. So if you can find the new version, highly recommend it. She's alive.